Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This episode contains distressing themes profanity and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. In some religions and communities... Great weight is placed on the family and its so-called collective honour. Name and reputation can overshadow everything else, and a specific code of honour must be followed. Sometimes when perceived shame has been brought upon a family, the alleged wrongdoer is forced to pay the ultimate price. At home she was expected to be a dutiful Turkish daughter, while out of the family home, she's exposed to a lifestyle that was completely at odds with her upbringing. The truth is, he needs to step forward and tell the truth of what he's done to her, really, rather than trying to, to blame on other people. It's just really sad, because when, when I do things like go out with my friends and, you know, little things, it's like, she didn't get to do this, and she's probably dead and buried somewhere, no one knows, and it's, it's heartbreaking. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 46 of They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Tulay Goren was born to parents Mehmet and Hanim in the Turkish town of Elbistan in March 1983. The Goren family was one of deep faith. They were Turkish Kurds and were part of the Alevi community. Tulai had an older sister and two younger siblings, a sister and a brother. By 1995, she was approaching her awkward teenage years and the family had travelled to the United Kingdom. After claiming asylum, the Gorens had settled in Woodford Green in East London. They built a life on Glastonbury Avenue, a quiet residential street close to the local football club. Tulai's father, Mehmet, worked part-time at a local fish and chip shop, while her mother, Hanim, found employment in a clothing factory. As it turned out, Tulai enjoyed her new life in England. She enrolled at Woodbridge High School, where despite not only being new to the class but new to the country, she adapted and made friends with ease. However, according to people who knew Tulai, she was having problems at home. 
She was young and easily adapted to the challenges of living in a new country, but her father Mehmet struggled. He found it difficult to adapt to the culture, refused to learn English, and in turn could not hold down a regular job. On top of that, Mehmet was a gambler. He frittered away what savings the family had, along with any child benefits and support payments he received. While Tulai immersed herself in British culture, Mehmet was intent on maintaining his interpretation of the culture and tradition of his homeland. One tradition important to Mehmet was the observance of the honour code. Within the close patriarchal community the Gorens inhabited, women were seen as the property of their fathers and then their husbands. Females were ordered to obey, but this was at odds with the British schooling that Tulai and her sisters received. According to Tulai's friends, the teenager often came to school with fresh black eyes and complained about her strict father, who kept the family in check through violence. One friend Nadia Mahmood recalled to a reporter for the Evening Standard. She said she hurt her eye bending down and hitting a chair, but from her face, I could tell that was not the truth. It was obvious she had been hit. Three years passed in London. During the summer holidays of 1998, the now 15-year-old Tulai Goren began work experience at a clothing factory in Hackney. It was the place where her mother Hanim had worked, and Hanim helped her daughter secure the job. Tulai was excited about the new venture, she liked the prospect of eventually earning her own money, which in turn would give her more freedom. While working there, Tulai met 30-year-old Halil Unal, a supervisor in the clothing factory. Halil had also come from Turkey, but from a different town in the Kurdish region. He was brought up as a Sunni Muslim, while Tulai was from the Alevi branch of the faith. Tulai and Halil built up a friendship, and Tulai shared with Halil her desire to find a man who would love her and marry her. After Tulai returned to school, Halil Unal told Tulai's mother Hanim that he wanted to marry her daughter in accordance with the courtship traditions of the family. Hanim responded that it was out of the question. Tulai had already been promised to her nephew in Switzerland. When Tulai's father Mehmet was informed of the prospect of marriage, he was furious. His anger did not seem to stem from the age difference, but from the fact that Halil was a Sunni Muslim. The Alevi minority has long claimed to have suffered persecution from the Sunni majority in their homeland. Tulai told her parents that she was in love, but they were headstrong in their determination that the couple could not and would not marry. Despite her parents' disapproval, Tulai and Halil continued seeing one another and spoke on the phone every day. According to court documents, Halil was under the mistaken belief that Tulai was 17. In December 1998, furious that his commands were not being followed, Mehmet appeared at the factory where Halil worked. In a violent assault, Mehmet threatened to end Halil's life if he did not cool off the relationship. Halil reported the incident to the police, but decided not to press charges as he wanted Mehmet's approval to marry his daughter. Tulai was distraught by her father's actions, 
and even more determined for the marriage to go ahead. When she confronted Mehmet, he responded by slapping his daughter across the face and ordering her to take a test to prove her virginity. Distraught Tulai ran away to Halil Unal's flat in Hackney and divulged what had happened. Halil would later describe Tulai's injuries. I looked at her face and I saw she had bruising to her eye. She told me that her father tortured her and beat her, and that her uncle Kumar was pressuring her. Halil encouraged Tulai to go to the police, and she agreed. At Leytonstone Police Station, Tulai explained that she and her father had a heated argument about her relationship with Halil, and she had been attacked. Tulai told the police that she did not want to return to Woodford Green, and that she would rather be taken to a children's home. When Tulai refused to leave the station, officers called her mother. The police divulged the teenager's whereabouts. Tulai was eventually persuaded to leave the police station that afternoon, but only after asking that her complaint be fully documented in case there were any more incidents. As Tulai was taken home, her father Mehmet demanded the police give his daughter a virginity test. When the Gorens arrived back in Woodford Green, the atmosphere in the home was tense. Another heated argument erupted, and Mehmet punched and kicked his daughter, which resulted in Tulai running away once more to stay with Halil Una. They were both determined to marry, and while staying in Hackney with Halil, Tulai pleaded with her parents for their approval. Her attempts were futile. Mehmet was adamant that his daughter was not going to marry a Sunni Muslim. Mehmet felt that Tulai's transgression would be seen as a stain on the status of the male members of the Goren family which in turn would risk them being excluded from the community. Alil Unal decided to try his luck once more. He spoke privately with Tulai's mother and requested her approval for the marriage to go ahead. Anim told Halil he would need to provide £5,000, an amount later referred to as bribe money, to cover the cost of Tulai being, quote, smuggled into Britain. Halil did not have that kind of money, but he handed over what little he did have. Ultimately, the funds were used by Mehmet to feed his gambling addiction, not support his family. It was clear to both Tulai and Halil that they were getting nowhere with her parents, so they arranged for a civil ceremony to take place on December 21st, 1998. Tulai and Halil arrived at Hackney Registry Office, but it was then Halil discovered that Tulai was only 15 years old. She had lied to Halil and told him that she was older. Unsurprisingly, the ceremony did not go ahead, and they were turned away at the registry office but the pair agreed that they would return when Tulai turned 16 in March. On January 6, 1999, approximately two months before Tulai's 16th birthday, she was at Halil's flat when she rang him in a panic and said through tears, Quick, come here. My parents are taking me home. Halil tried to calm Tulai down. He advised her that she return with them, and in the meantime he would find a more appropriate place for them to live. Halil called Tulai back later that evening, but her father picked up the phone. 
Mehmet boldly stated, I am not giving my daughter to you, and if you should come here, just think about what you will get. That night, Mehmet called a meeting with the elders of the family, including his two brothers Ali and Kumar. The following morning, Halil received a phone call from Tulai. In a whisper, she said to him, Halil, don't come over. They're trying to lure you into a trap. Halil responded, Okay, but if they're trying to lure me into a trap, they are probably setting you up as well. The phone line then fell silent before Tulai abruptly hung up the phone. Shortly thereafter, Elil received another phone call. This time it was from Tulai's father, Mehmet, who tried to encourage Halil to come over to the Goren family home. Halil replied, If I do come over, it will be with two police officers. Mehmet sounded offended by the suggestion and responded, Why would you want to bring the police? You're my son. Halil replied, there's no way on earth I'm coming over. Mehmet was furious by Halil's reluctance and shouted, I fuck your mother, and then began uttering more abuse and obscenities before hanging up. Over the next two weeks, Halil Unal attempted to contact Tulai but was unsuccessful. He feared she was being held against her will at the family home. However, one morning he received a phone call from Mehmet, who apologised and asked to discuss helping to find a suitable flat for Halil to live with his daughter. They agreed to meet on January 19th at the Thatched House pub in Leytonstone in East London. When Halil arrived in the presence of mediators, Mehmet told him that he and Tulai could be married. Halil recalled, At this news, I became tearful and emotional, and I got up on my feet and kissed my father-in-law on the hand, a Turkish custom which denotes respect. Mehmet asked Halil to accompany him outside so they could ring Tulai with the good news. Mehmet suggested they walk down an alleyway near the pub to get away from the noise of the traffic. As Halil reached for his mobile phone, he felt a heavy and sharp object striking the side of his neck. After regaining his balance... He turned to see Mehmet standing behind him, armed with a hatchet. Halil reached for his neck to find that blood was spurting out of an injury. Dazed and confused, Halil somehow managed to find the strength to outrun his attacker. He headed back to the public house and alerted the authorities. The hatchet had left a wound four inches long and two inches deep. It required surgery that lasted almost an hour, leaving Halil with permanent nerve damage. The ominous attack on his life had led Halil to determine that Mehmet Goren had something to do with his daughter's disappearance. Officers from the Metropolitan Police Force arrived at the Goren family home that afternoon. Tulai's father Mehmet claimed that his daughter had simply run away. He ordered his wife into the room and she corroborated his story. Anim claimed that she returned home on January 7th to find that her daughter was missing. She said that when she checked in Tulai's bedroom, she noticed that most of her daughter's clothing was missing as well, indicating that Tulai had left of her own volition. 
At the time, the police did not have enough evidence to make an arrest in relation to Tulai's disappearance. But two days after she was reported missing, a handwritten letter was delivered to her home. It was reportedly from Tulai. It appeared to be in her handwriting, and it read that she had been kidnapped by Halil Unal's boss, Bilal Dinas. The letter read, If anything happens to me, Bilal is responsible for it. He locks me in a room. He gives me food. He comes once every two or three days. He has done many bad things to me. The police had the letter analysed, and the handwriting matched two lies. However, the writing on the envelope had been penned by someone else. Fearing the worst had happened to the teenager, the Metropolitan Police Force appealed to the public for information. They began speaking with Tulai's loved ones to gain insight into her life, hoping it would lead them to Tulai. Missing person posters described Tulai as standing around 5 feet 6 inches tall with long brown hair and brown eyes. As for further identifying features, the poster noted that she had a mole on her face. Addressing the media, Sergeant Stuart Jessup said, It's a bit of a mystery, really. We have been talking to family and friends in an attempt to establish leads. She has gone missing twice before, but we don't know when or how long. The parents speak broken English, and so we use translators. The search was initially hampered by the fact that Tulai was not reported missing until 13 days after her family had last seen her. The first 48 hours of any disappearance are the most crucial. After that, vital evidence can be lost, and hope begins to fade that the missing person will be found. Various tips came in throughout the area from concerned locals who believed they had seen Tulai. The police checked on all potential sightings, but were disappointed when each one only led to a dead end. By the middle of February 1999, the police announced that the search for Tulai Goren was winding down. Sergeant Keith Bailey stated, Despite an intensive police search, we still have not been able to find her. Although we have concerns for her well-being, there is a point when the search has to come to an end. We are in touch with her parents daily, and they are obviously concerned for her safety. Sergeant Bailey added that if Tulai had gone somewhere of her own volition, then somebody most likely would have seen her and notified the police. The officer said, We have had reported sightings of her, but no one could say if that was her for definite. Naturally, detectives were suspicious of the Goren family. They knew about the attack on Halil, but struggled to link it to Tulai's disappearance. On March 23rd, a new development unfolded when Mehmet and Hanim Goren were arrested. Under police questioning, Hanim broke down when she shared her belief that Mehmet might have been involved. Over the next year, police continued working on the case, gathering all the evidence they had against Mehmet Goren before presenting it to the Crown Prosecution Service. However, the CPS refused to move forward with a prosecution, explaining they could not rule out the possibility that Tulai was still alive. At the time, hearsay evidence could not be presented during the trial, which meant that if charges were filed, Emmett's wife Hanim would not be able to testify. 
while charges regarding Tulai's disappearance could not be filed. Mehmet Goren was charged in relation to the attack on Halil Unal. Mehmet argued that Halil had been the one armed with the hatchet, and he only used it in self-defence. In August 2000, Mehmet Goren was convicted of intent to cause grievous bodily harm and was ordered to serve seven years in prison. Determined to fight the case, an appeal was made against the length of the sentence. Upon reviewing the evidence, the appeal judges agreed with the defence counsel's argument that Mehmet's actions were a result of his alleged belief that Halil Unal had been involved in his daughter's disappearance. Further mitigating factors were also listed. Quote, it is said that his treatment while in his own country for political reasons was very severe, in which he was subjected to torture and imprisonment. Next, it is said that since he has been in this country lawfully, he has worked extremely hard and has behaved in a perfectly proper manner and that, until this offence was committed, he had no convictions recorded against him. His previous good character is also relied upon. Mehmet Goren's sentence was reduced to five years, of which he would serve just three before he was released early to be deported. Again, his legal counsel successfully appealed the order, and Mehmet continued living in Britain with his family. Tragically, the focus on the disappearance of Tulai Goren waned. Few, if any, newspapers and media outlets mentioned her name, and several years would pass without any developments in the case. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On November 25th, 2008, 
there was a massive breakthrough in the investigation when three men were arrested in connection with Tulai Goren's disappearance. Moreover, the Metropolitan Police were certain she had been murdered. The suspects were 41-year-old Kumar Gorin, 55-year-old Ali Gorin, and 48-year-old Mehmet Gorin. They were Tulai's uncles and her father. In announcing the arrest, a police spokesperson said, The investigation has always remained open and under review. Tulai's body has yet to be discovered. Two days later, Mehmet Goren was charged with murder and conspiracy to murder along with his brothers Kumar and Ali Goren. Their arrests had been made following a cold case review into Tulai's disappearance, which was opened in 2007. When Tulai first went missing, the police had little understanding of what was described as honour crimes. However, since then, the number of similar offences had increased sharply in Britain. There had also been significant changes to the criminal justice system as well, which now allowed hearsay evidence. Moreover, since there had been no verifiable sightings of Tulai in the preceding years, she could now be declared legally dead. When the police were looking into honour crimes more closely in relation to Tulai's disappearance, which was now classified as a murder, they flew out to Turkey to consult with Professor Akatin Sir, a psychiatrist and expert on honour crimes. He knew nothing of the details of Tulai's case, but highlighted to the police a pattern of honour killings among rural communities in the east of Turkey that mirrored the case. Professor Sir said that for an honour killing to occur, a meeting would have needed to be held which would include the males of the family, i.e. Tulai's father and uncles. Around 12 cases of honour killings were investigated each year between 1998 and 2007, which meant that the police were now more aware of their existence. Metropolitan Police Commander Steve Allen later spoke about honour crimes and the difficulties the police face when trying to understand the true nature of related offences. We put a lot of effort into it because the stakes are so high. We're talking about people living or dying, uh, depending on whether we get our response right or wrong. One of the things that we don't know is simply how much of this there is. We're seeing more and more reported in terms of uh, incidents related to forced marriage. Uh, more and more reported, I suspect we're still only seeing a fraction of what's happening out there. Investigators found that in honour crime cases... There was a veil of silence that surrounded each, which made them much more challenging to investigate. As United Nations Special Advisor Asma Janghajir said, the perpetrators of these crimes are mostly male family members of the murdered women who go unpunished or receive reduced sentences on the justification of having murdered to defend their misconceived notions of family honour. As detectives had a better understanding of the dynamics surrounding honour crimes, they decided to take a look at Tulai's case once more. A breakthrough ultimately came from Tulai's mother, Hanim. During the initial investigation, Hanim had stuck to the same story that her husband told the police, that Hanim returned home one afternoon to find Tulai gone, along with just £20 and a bag of clothing. She had later informed detectives that she feared Mehmet had something to do with Tulai's disappearance, but at the time she was too afraid of her husband to reveal the whole truth. Anim would confess that the day after Tulai was brought home on January 6th, she entered her daughter's bedroom to find Tulai tied up and face down on the bed. 
Tulai's hands were tied so tightly they had almost turned purple. Her husband Mehmet emerged from the bedroom door and ordered Hanim not to touch Tulai or untie her. He revealed that he had laced Tulai's coffee with sleeping pills and had tied her up to prevent her from running away. Mehmet then ordered Hanim and their three other children to go and stay with his brother Kumar in Walthamstow. He said that he and his daughter had, quote, things to talk about. Before Hanim and the children left, Mehmet told his eight-year-old son Tunkai to kiss Tulai goodbye, as it would be the last time he would see her. According to Hanim, when she returned the following day, her daughter was gone, and earth in the garden had been disturbed. Mehmet told his wife that Tulai had run away, but Hanim could not help but notice that Mehmet had a deep cut and scratch marks on his hands. When she inquired about them, Mehmet said he had slipped on a banana skin. Hanim also observed that the washing line was missing from the garden. According to Mehmet, he had taken it to capture Tulai. Two knives were also absent from the kitchen. Hanim was suspicious, and these suspicions deepened when she observed Mehmet washing one of his shirts. It was the first time she had ever seen him washing any clothing during their 30-year marriage. That evening, Mehmet sat Hanim down and warned his wife that their marriage would be over if she ever spoke of Tulai again. He chillingly commented, Our children are no longer four children. From now on, we only have three children. Hanim watched on in silence as Mehmet tore up photographs of Tulai, along with her Turkish identity card and her birth certificate. He told his wife, There will not be anything left inside that belongs to Tulai. Hanim Goren explained to detectives that around a week later, Mehmet sent her and the three children away to his brother's home again. She said that when she returned the following day, the garden looked different. She said it appeared as though it had been dug up. The patio was soaked with water, and almost an entire roll of bin bags was missing. According to Mehmet, he had turned over the soil with a meat cleaver and planned on planting vegetables. Neem found this odd. They had lived in the home for several years. Never once had Mehmet shown any interest in the garden and had never expressed a desire to plant vegetables. Anim went on to say that Mehmet was a very violent man who had often beaten her and the girls. She said that on one occasion he attempted to inject her with rat poison. On another, she claimed he tried to gas the whole family to death. It turned out that Mehmet Goren had a criminal record to back up Hanim's claims. He had been imprisoned in both Turkey and Saudi Arabia. He had ties to a militant political organisation, the Kurdistan Workers' Party. He had carried out robberies on their behalf which ultimately resulted in his imprisonment. After Hanim Goren came forward with her account of the events surrounding her daughter's disappearance, she took on the role of detective. She forced Mehmet to tell her where he had disposed of the washing line and then informed the police of its whereabouts. Officers managed to recover the material. Forensic testing later showed hairs possibly coming from Tulai, one of her maternal relatives. In 
it was decided that the three Goren brothers were going to be put on trial together. In October 2009, legal proceedings began at the Old Bailey. The defendants were charged with conspiracy to murder Halil Unal and the murder of Tulai Goren. During opening statements, Prosecutor Jonathan Laidlaw QC said that Tulai Goren had been killed by her father to, quote, restore the so-called honour of his family. The Crown put forward its theory that Tulai had been the victim of an honour killing and that her two uncles had either approved of the murder or helped to set it up and carry it out. There was no forensic evidence tying them to the crime, only witness accounts. The prosecutor explained that on the day of Tulai's murder, one of her uncles, Ali Goren, was working in his cafe in Workington, Cumbria, but her other uncle, Kumar, was closer at hand and was allegedly involved in helping Mehmet dispose of his daughter's body. The case against the defendants argued that Ali Goren, the elder of the family, was responsible for the protection of the family's reputation and would have been the key to making the final decision on the killing. Jonathan Laidlaw QC described the troubles that Tulai had with her father and detailed how these escalated when Mehmet learned of her relationship with a man of a different faith. The barrister said to the jury, What ultimately caused the most terrible of problems within this family, and was ultimately to lead to Tulai's murder, was a relationship she formed in London with a man named Halil Una. Despite their differences in age, Tulai pursued Halil. She clearly loved him. Jonathan Laidlaw QC described how the relationship between Tulai and Halil produced in Mehmet a fear that his daughter had lost her virginity. Laidlaw said that in Mehmet's eyes this would, quote, leave her as a worthless commodity in terms of his ability to marry her off. The prosecutor told the court about Tulai's attempt to marry Halil and described how the family had brought her back home on January 6, 1999, and held her captive. Laidlaw stated, On January 7th, these men attempted to ensnare Halil by persuading him to come to the family home, but Tulai managed to warn him of the trap and his life was saved. Tulai was not so fortunate. She was never seen alive again and the prosecution's case is that she was murdered at home later that same day. It was the prosecution's theory that Tulai's body was hidden in the back garden for around a week before it was removed and taken elsewhere to be disposed of. Jonathan Laidlaw QC explained that the police now had a better understanding of honour killings, and described how the reputation of some men within certain cultures depended on the women in the family observing certain customs. He said that perceived transgressions in the culture can sometimes be seen to bring shame, saying, Such stains have to be cleansed at any cost, if necessary through murder. Halil Unal was the first witness to testify through an interpreter. From behind a screen, Halil told the jury about the violence that preceded Tulai's disappearance. Testifying about the phone call from Tulai which took place after her parents forced her home on January 6, 1999, Halil described his conversations with Mehmet and his reaction. The witness also spoke about family councils that often precede so-called honour crimes. Alil stated, In our honour customs, the elder members of the family, they gather in their homes, and they make a decision, 
either to get two people together or to lose the two people. In other words, to kill them. Detailing how he was attacked by Mehmet, who was armed with a hatchet. Alil testified, I saw something in his hand, and it was shining. It was the light shining on the axe. He wanted to kill me because that's the decision they make. In the custom of honour, they are either going to kill off the girl or kill both of them together. I have a clean heart and that's why I am alive now. I don't care if the Gorin family kill me now. I've waited ten years to be here. I am in stress and fear every day. Under cross-examination by Mehmet Gorin's defence counsel, Michael Turner QC, Alil was asked whether Tulai Gorin could have been pregnant at the time of her disappearance. Alil responded, I was thinking she may be pregnant because she stayed with me for 26 days, and we didn't take precautions. Michael Turner QC then suggested that Tulai was not dead at all, but in fact had fled to Paris with Halil's help. The barrister revealed that after Tulai vanished, Halil had made several calls to a phone in the French capital. Halil denied that this was true. Following Halil Unal's testimony, Anim Goren took the stand. As she began testifying, her husband Mehmet collapsed in a suspected fit. The trial needed to be halted momentarily, and the judge ordered the proceedings should resume later in the afternoon. When the court reconvened, Anim waived her right to speak behind a screen and instead testified before the court in front of her husband and his two brothers. She spoke about the events leading up to her daughter's disappearance as well as her suspicious observations in the aftermath. While Hanim was on the witness stand, she confronted her husband who sat just ten metres away in the dock. He sat emotionless as she begged, What have you done to my daughter? She then demanded, Look at my face. What did you do to Tulai? Anim was stopped by the judge, Mr Justice Bean, who told her, Please stop. You are here to answer questions from counsel. Anim then turned to the jury and said, It was Mehmet who disappeared too, lie. I am sure of that. Anim struggled to hold in her emotion, as through an interpreter she explained how after Tulai vanished, she received the brunt of the abuse at the hands of her husband. She repeatedly confronted Mehmet about Tulai's disappearance in the years that followed increasingly so, after her youngest daughter tragically died in a car crash in 2006. The witness explained that Mehmet denied having anything to do with it. Anim testified, He used to say those who did it are over there. I don't know who he meant. Describing how she then began threatening to go to the police, Anim's husband told her that he would blame her and her relatives. It was even suggested that Tulai would still have been alive if the man she was involved with had paid the full £5,000, which Anim said Mehmet wanted for gambling. As the tears rolled down her cheeks, Anim said she was no longer afraid of her husband. Looking at him in the dock, she said, Even if he hits me or kills me, I am not afraid. He's in front of me now. He's hearing me knowing everything he denies. He should come out honestly, bravely as a man. 
Come and tell the truth. I have had enough. I'm trying to be strong for Toonkai and Nurai, but I can't do it anymore. I can't cope. Under cross-examination by Defence Counsel Michael Turner QC, he argued that Hanim Goren was involved in the murder of her daughter, and she was just as angry as Mehmet over the relationship her daughter had with a man of a different faith. And he responded, As a mother, I was angry. I was upset. But I did not kill her. I did not kill. The person who killed her is over there. And he pointed to her husband. Next, the jury heard from Professor Yakin Erturk, a United Nations independent expert on violence against women. She explained so-called honour killings to the jury and said that at the heart of the honour code was, quote, women's virginity, which determines her worth. Professor Erturk described how, if the family or the father of the girl who was alleged to have brought shame upon them did not do enough to punish the girl, then they or he would also be considered guilty. The expert witness said that a family council could include relatives overseas, and they did not have to meet in person. She stated... Honor-based violence does not normally occur on the spur of the moment, but is an escalation of the tension when the woman is seen to openly challenge acceptable modes of behaviour. Professor Erturk told the courtroom how honour was an important value in Turkish society, particularly in the southeast of the country where many Kurds live. In the second week of the trial, the jury heard a videotaped interview between police and Tulai's late sister, Hatice, recorded in 1999. In the interview, Hatice tells officers that on January 6th, after Tulai was brought back home by her parents, she witnessed her father grabbing Tulai after she attempted to escape. Matisse recalled, I think my sister went to the toilet and she was going to jump from the window. My dad got her round the neck. The next morning, Hatice, her mother and her siblings were forced to leave the home by their father. She recalled how Mehmet had told her brother to kiss Tulai goodbye. She said, He went and kissed her and my dad was crying as well. When she returned, Hatice was told by her father that her sister had run away. Tulai's other sister, Nurai, also addressed the court. After sitting in the witness box, she screamed in Turkish at her father before letting out an impassioned wail. The witness described Tulai as a, quote, child looking for happiness. She was very young, and she was vulnerable. Maybe what she was looking for was a father. Maybe she found a love that she did not get from her father. Nurai spoke about the same incident her late sister described back in 1999 telling the courtroom that Tulai tried to escape out of a toilet window but was prevented from doing so. My father was very upset, Nurai said. He got cross with her, and he was saying that he was going to kill her. Emmett often screamed at his daughter, shouting obscenities including that she was a whore. Nurai revealed that late that night her father ordered her to make Tulai a cup of coffee and then watched as her father dissolved sleeping tablets in the cup. 
Emmett told Nurai that this was to make Tulai fall asleep so she wouldn't run away. Sometime later, Nurai overheard her father speaking on the phone. He said, Don't worry, I won't allow her to shout. Nurai was asked by Defence Counsel Michael Turner QC why she did not go to the police about the threat her father had made to Two Lies life. Through sobs, she responded, I did not think that this would be possible. I still can't think that it is possible, because a father could not do such a thing. I never believed. Mehmet Goren took the stand to testify on his own behalf. He claimed that his older brother Ali had urged him to kill Tulai for bringing shame to the family, but said that he refused to carry it out. Mehmet alleged that Ali had branded Tulai a prostitute and a slut, and had ordered him to kill her, quote, as if he were asking me to buy a kilo of rice. According to Mehmet, he was told to invite Tulai and Halil over for dinner at the family home and then do what's necessary. Through an interpreter, Mehmet said, I would need to be a sadist to harm my own child. Only people that have something wrong with their heads or minds are capable of harming their own children. Those that love Islam totally, the Shara law completely, They are capable of harming their own children. Mehmet Goren described how he was unlike his brother, who allegedly was someone with no love, no affection for his children or brothers. Mehmet claimed that the only reason he forced Tulai to return home was that he had found out she was living in the flat in Hackney with Halil and other men also argued that it was his wife, Hanim, who had tied up Tulai and drugged her coffee. He accused Hanim of beating their children regularly. Mehmet said Hanim berated Tulai during a row with her on the day she disappeared. Ali Goren testified next and countered what his brother Mehmet had claimed. Through an interpreter, Ali said he had a good relationship with Tulai and treated her like a daughter. He even spoke with her on the phone and offered her counsel a day before she returned home and vanished. Ali said his relationship with his brother Mehmet was distant and they had rowed over Mehmet's addiction to gambling. Ali went on to claim he had no issues with people of other faiths and said since 1998 his own son had a girlfriend who was a Sunni Muslim. Questioned by his counsel Michael Bromley Martin QC, Ali Goren insisted that he did not follow an honour code and did not murder anyone. Following Ali Goren's testimony, the prosecutor and counsel for each defendant began their closing arguments. Jonathan Laidlaw QC summed up the prosecution case and said all three brothers were guilty of the crimes. He said there were numerous telephone calls between Mehmet and Ali before Tulai vanished and that Ali made a trip from Cumbria to London following her disappearance. Laidlaw stated, Tulai's involvement with a Sunni Muslim had an impact which extended beyond Mehmet and his family, and that is why we say there was the involvement of the older brother. The senior member of the family is responsible for solving the family's honour. It was argued that Kumar Goren either physically assisted in the murder or was consulted about and gave approval for the killing. 
Defence counsel Michael Turner QC told the jury that it would have been impossible for his client Mehmet Goren to kill and dismember Tulai at the family home and bury her in the garden without leaving behind any evidence. No DNA or blood had been found at the property, and sniffer dogs failed to pick up a scent of human decomposition. The barrister suggested that Tulai Gorin had simply run away from home and was living somewhere abroad. So where are we now? The jury returned with their verdicts. The foreman announced that they were acquitting all three defendants of the charge of conspiracy to murder Halil Unal. As for the charge of murdering Tulai Goren, Ali Goren was found not guilty. Umar Goren was found not guilty. Mehmet Goren was found guilty. The crime brings an automatic life sentence. Mr Justice Bean said that the term honour killing was a grotesque distortion of language and felt there was nothing honourable about such a hideous practice or the people who carry it out. The judge told Mehmet Goren he would have to serve at least 22 years behind bars before a parole board could consider his release. Following the verdict, Professor Yakin Erturk, the independent expert on violence against women who testified at the trial, and Damaris Lakin from the Crown Prosecution Service, spoke with the media. It was not just a matter of this 15-year-old girl misbehaving, but she actually went and had sexual intercourse with a, a man. She actually went and uh, started living with him. So it became a public issue. It was not something the family could deal with internally by beating her or disciplining her, but it became something that everybody knew about. He killed his own daughter because he believed that she had shamed him. But his conviction today shows that the true shame was, and always will be, his to bear. Outside of court, DCI John MacDonald of the Homicide and Serious Crime Command voiced his belief that despite the time that had passed, justice had been served. He said... There should be no place in any society for the outdated, feudal beliefs that led to this murder. I would like to give special mention to Tulai's mother, Hanim, and her sister, Nurai, who both gave vital evidence in this case, whilst under great pressure. After his acquittal, Kumar Gorin spoke through a translator and was adamant that Tulai was still alive. I don't know anything. From what my brother Mehmet and my sister Hanin tells me, she's run away with Hanil. I believe them. I never harmed Tulai in any way. She was my life. I think 100% that she is not dead and I still believe that she is alive. We don't believe in honor killing. There is no such thing in our culture. Tulai's sister Nurai provided a statement in which she spoke of her belief that Tulai was caught in the middle of two clashing worlds. She was expected to be a dutiful Turkish daughter, while outside of the family home Tulai was exposed to a lifestyle that was completely at odds with her upbringing. So much of our tradition and custom stood in the way of what Tulai ultimately wanted – Nirai said. For my father, I have only one request. I ask that he finally disclose the whereabouts of my sister. My mother and I have a message for women who feel that they have no voice. Let them find the courage to come forward to the authorities and speak out. Let them know like us, they will be listened to 
and taken seriously. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.